to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you ever feel like your self-worth is based on your achievement? Do you think you just aren't good enough sometimes? Do you convince yourself that you'll feel happier if you become a little more successful? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. I'm talking to Dr. Ronald Siegel. Ronald is an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. He teaches about mind-body medicine and the application of mindfulness and compassion practices. He's written several books on mindfulness, compassion, and chronic pain. And today we're talking about his newest book. It's called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. Now, I know you might be thinking, here's this really successful person who's going to tell me that success isn't going to make me happy. But wait until you hear the things he has to say. He's done a lot of research on how we're hardwired to believe that the secret to a better life just involves one more achievement. But that's not true. Some of the things he talks about today are giving yourself a break sometimes, practicing self-acceptance, and allowing yourself to be happy right where you are now. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Ronald's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dr. Ronald Siegel on how accepting the fact that you're ordinary might actually help you to become mentally stronger. Ronald Siegel, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for having me. So I am thrilled to have read a copy of your book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. And I, as probably a lot of people are going to do when they see the title of that, that book, their first response is going to be, yeah, but I don't want to be ordinary, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Why is it that we have this idea that we shouldn't be ordinary? Well, you know, there are a lot of factors that uh, that contribute to this. Uh, one of them has to do with our evolutionary history. Uh, it turns out that uh, way back in evolutionary time, it was important to be better than ordinary, right? The dominant creatures in, in, in our primate group were the ones who had more access to food, more access to better mating opportunities, better opportunities to take care of their kids. So we're rather hardwired to feel like it's important to be high up in the pecking order. And it's not just us, it's birds. We speak about pecking orders. There are species of crickets that if you put them inside of a box, inside of just a few seconds, they'll organize themselves into a hierarchy. So it's this general concern with hierarchies and who's above who that actually makes us feel uncomfortable with being ordinary. And uh, where does social media come into that? Now that we're able to look around at what other people are doing all the time, how does that play into this idea that we somehow should be more special than other people? Well, it amplifies it tremendously. Uh, and this is because everybody is seeing what everybody else is doing. And worse, they're seeing curated versions of what everybody else is doing. Not too many people have a post on Facebook or Instagram that said, woke up this morning, have the runs again, afraid I'm going to get a bad performance review at work and my girlfriend's going to leave me. Rather, it's, yay, look at me at this fantastic place doing these fantastic things with fantastic people and you're not included. 
if we were countries or nation states, it would be as though we were reading our own crime and poverty statistics and looking at other people's travel brochures. It just, it just amps up this feeling of not good enough, or I have to strive even higher to make sure that I stay on top. And what's wrong with thinking that we should be special? Well, it basically makes us miserable. That's the only problem with it. Because <laughs> um, it, it does this in two ways. Either we're spending time moping around, feeling inadequate, feeling like we're somehow not living up to standards, not living up to expectations, or not living up to what other people are doing. Or if we are on top, if we're riding the wave, we're constantly stressed out, having to achieve more, make sure that we look good, make sure that we uh, accomplish things, make sure that other people like us and we're popular. We're constantly stressed out trying to make sure that we keep feeling somehow better than the average bear. And all of this robs us from opportunities for much more fulfilling, much more durable sources of well-being. That's one of their problems, right? Even if we do achieve something and you get to the top, then we become so anxious that we're not going to stay there. How long can you stay there? How long can you sustain this? And then we keep, it's a never ending cycle, right? You just can't ever quite achieve enough to feel good enough about yourself. Absolutely. And there, there are two things that keep us stuck in this. One of them is the fact that what goes up goes down, right? Uh, even if you're really at the top of your game, you're an Olympic gold medalist and you actually won the gold, what are the chances of doing it in four years or eight years? The other thing is what we might call narcissistic or self-esteem recalibration. What happens is the things that once floated our boat no longer work because we habituate to them. Humans habituate to everything. Uh, so there was a time when we figured out how to put multicolored uh, round donuts uh, of different sizes on a pole in the right order. So it looked like a cone as a toddler. And we thought, hey, look at me, this is really cool. Or we rode a bicycle or we were able to go to the store alone or we had our first girlfriend or boyfriend or first apartment or first car. All of these different things once floated our boat and we felt really good about them. You know, I train uh, psychotherapists a lot uh, all of whom worked really hard for terminal degrees and, and licenses to practice. And I'll often ask a group, how many of you woke up this morning feeling really good about yourself because you have your license? And sometimes one newly minted therapist raises their hand and say, I do. And they say, why is everybody else laughing, right? Because the things that once worked, we simply accustom ourselves to, and then we need more and more and more. And this is even true with people who are quite close to the top of their game. And we see this in figures who, uh, you know, who are leaders in different ways. They're constantly striving. I need something more. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciated about your book is you talked about uh, how we all tend to do this. It's not just something that people who come into our therapy offices do. Psychotherapists do the same thing, that we struggle with it. And you give the example of a psychologist who says that uh, if he just had a wonderful session, somebody made tons of progress, he feels like the best therapist in the world. And then you have somebody else who's stuck. You don't even know what to say to them. It doesn't go well. And you're thinking, I'm the worst in the world. And it all depends on you're only as good as your your latest therapy appointment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And and it, it actually, that you know, pointing that out raises this very interesting question, which is, you know, what's the time frame we use to evaluate ourselves, right? We all go up and down. We feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves. But what is it? Is this like a cumulative grade point average since we were born? 
How many good things have I done? How many accomplishments have I had? How many friends have I had? How many times have I felt that I was, you know, <clears throat> morally good or righteous? Or is it based on last month or last week? Or as the example you shared that was in the book, sometimes it's just based on the last few minutes, right? We can go up and down constantly throughout the day based on this. And as we reflect on that, we start to realize who made up the system? Where did we get the idea that it has to be, we have to always be at the top of our game. And no matter what we may have done in the past, really doesn't have a, a very much sticking power. And how much of it comes from our parents? If we grew up being a perfectionist or an overachiever, how much of that comes from just as a kid thinking, okay, if I did a good job, then I must be good enough? Well, we certainly get hooked on this early on, whether it's, you know, putting the donuts on the pole and smiling and we feel good ourselves. But then mommy or daddy also says, oh, that's wonderful, sweetheart. And we take that in. So so absolutely, it starts early on. And some of this is natural and actually all of this is natural and unavoidable. Um, it's certainly worse if we have parents whose own feelings about themselves, whose own self-esteem is predicated on us being successful. And that's not unusual because those of us who have been parents, we kind of do feel good when our kids do do well, and we kind of do feel bad when our kids are failing. So it's, it's very easy as a parent to get hooked on this. And that tends to perpetuate it. And then there are all the signals we get from our culture, right? The, the culture The culture really delivers the message that if only you could be better, you would be happy. And if you're not feeling happy, it's either because you didn't buy the right consumer product or um, you're somehow too fat or uh, you haven't achieved enough. And in fact, we get all these advertising messages, right? That say all the time, buy this, do this, and you will feel good about yourself. That's the implicit message. And the problem is people do buy this, do this. They may feel good about themselves for a few moments, but then they recalibrate. And they start to feel, well, this isn't quite enough. Now I have to buy that and do that in order to feel okay. Do you want to walk us through an exercise to help us figure out where our self-worth does seem to come from? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is one I've, I've done with a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's really just a matter of reflecting on what matters to you. What are the building blocks that you use personally to establish a, a feeling good about yourself in some way? And if you're not driving a car, it's helpful to close your eyes for this and just take a breath or two and relax a little bit so you can be in a, a sort of receptive attitude. And I'm just going to share with you a list of things that matter to other people. And I want you to notice, do any of these matter to you either now or have they mattered to you in the past? We can start with skills and talents. Who's smarter? Am I smart enough? Or who's more educated? Am I educated enough? Or creativity? Am I creative? Am I talented? Do I have good taste? And of course, there's always athletics. Am I good enough at sports? Am I a good athlete? Are others better than me? And then we have all the accomplishments. Do I earn enough money? Do others get more than me? Am I respected enough? Do others get more respect? If you're a parent, who has the better looking, better behaved, or more successful children? Are my kids doing well enough? If you've got a partner, who has the better looking, better behaved, or more successful partner? Is my partner good enough? Am I succeeding at work? And then there's the groups we're part of. 
How do I feel about my family? Do I come from a good family? Or my college, if you went to college, did I go to a good enough college? Popularity, who has more friends? Am I popular enough? Do I have enough friends? Ever have feelings about being part of the in crowd or not? Getting attention or not? And then there's identities. How do I feel about my race, my ethnicity, my gender, my sexual orientation? Do I feel proud about this and good about this or not? And our role in relationships. Am I a good enough friend, good enough parent, child? Am I a good brother or sister, a good coworker? And then values. Am I nice enough? Am I honest enough? Am I as generous as I should be, as caring, forgiving? Am I socially aware enough? Are others more attuned to issues of justice and injustice than I am? And of course, the advertisers know physical qualities. Am I attractive enough? Who's thinner? Am I thin enough? Who's taller? Am I tall enough? Am I sexy enough? Do I look young enough? Who's stronger or in better shape? Am I fit enough? And I often write and teach about meditation practices, so I hang around with people who are interested in spiritual and psychological development. So then it gets even more ridiculous. Who's more enlightened? Who makes fewer social comparisons? Who's less driven by ego and self-esteem? Who's less concerned with themselves? So for our listeners, I'll often ask, okay, who found at least one of these to be relevant? Let me ask you, Amy, did you find at least one of these to be relevant? Yeah, definitely. Did you find more than one to be relevant? Yep. (laughs) Did you find almost all of them to be relevant? Yep. Yeah, that's usually our experience. And then the next part of this exercise is to just think about one that's, that's, that was, it's kind of on top for you. You know, one of the ones that, oh yeah, this one matters to me a lot or matters to me often. And imagine or remember a time when it went well. You know, that was valid. If it's about being intelligent where you felt, yeah, I was intelligent or people thought I was intelligent. If it's looks, yeah, I look great. And people thought I look great. And remember or imagine what that feels like in the body and the kind of the way our sort of chest lifts and we sit a little taller or stand taller and feel good about ourselves. And it's pretty pleasant, but it doesn't last very long because if we just remember the opposite, a time when we felt like, nah, not so smart, not so good looking, not so kind, whatever it is. We have that horrible sinking feeling and that collapse, right? You can kind of feel it in your stomach and everything collapses. And one of the interesting things about doing this exercise and noticing how different it feels to feel like, hey, I'm doing well and oh, I'm not doing well, is to realize that whenever there's a big difference between a good feeling and a bad feeling, we're ripe for addiction right? Where, you know, cocaine feels really good. Coming off of cocaine feels really bad. So people are very tempted to get more cocaine. Well, in the same way, these kinds of self-esteem boosts feel really good. Losing them feels really bad. And we become very addicted to how do I get the next one? How do I get the next one? How do I get the next one? And that leaves us both stressed out and at least half the time, miserable feeling like we're failing because unless we live in Lake Wobegon where all of the women are strong, all of the men are good looking, and all of the children are above average, we're going to win some and lose some. And this roller coaster is going to be painful. 
So what are the solutions? How do we stop always feeling like we have to be better than everybody else? Well, the first solution is actually just starting with this exercise we did to start to notice, hey, what am I hooked by? How does, you know, what are the building blocks that I use for my self-esteem? The interesting thing is different people rely on different building blocks. What we have in common is we all rely on something. And then we can start to catch ourselves in the act. We can start to notice throughout the day and mindfulness practices help for this, something that helps us to notice the thoughts and feelings that are arising in each moment. We can start to notice every time that we feel a little bit inflated, every time we feel, hey, look at me, I'm doing well. And every time we feel the opposite, just to get a sense of this, because the more we observe it, the more we start to disconnect from it a little bit. We develop what uh, cognitive psychologists call metacognitive awareness, the ability to see that a thought is really just a thought rather than a reality. And then we can start turning ourselves, our attention to things that are actually much more valuable sources of well-being, much more consistent. Uh, one of them, probably the most powerful, is simply connecting to other people. You know, when we're with a good friend and we're being honest and we're able to share our vulnerabilities, we go from being a me to a we. We start to feel it's us in this together. And all of this, what do they think of me? How am I doing? Did I sound good? Did I not sound good? That starts to lose some of its juice because we, we realize that instead we can be very sustained by the sense of connection. You know, when I'm talking to my clients about this, um, there's a phrase that they often find useful, which is make a connection, not an impression. Mm. What if in each interaction I had during the day, I was just concerned with connecting with this person, understanding their experience, sharing my actual experience rather than some curated view of my image that I'd like to portray? When we start to try to make a connection and actually make genuine connections, this concern with how am I doing starts to fall away. It does. We start to feel like, oh, it's okay. And even our whole sense of self shifts because it shifts from me being an island, having to be extraordinary in some way, having to be wonderful or special so that I might get loved, so that I might um, get chosen for things, so that I might feel connected, to realizing that we can find connection that's not based on being special, that's based actually on being honest and being real with people including real about our vulnerabilities about this stuff. So that's one very important avenue. We can come back to it. Another really important avenue is to just practice engaging in an activity with wholeheartedly and noticing the part of the activity, which is about uh, this kind of, these kind of seeking these self-esteem boosts and the part that's for something else. Like right now, as I'm talking to you, I can be motivated mostly by, gee, I hope I sound intelligent. I hope this is engaging for our listeners. I hope people like the book, right? I can be on that level. Or I can be at the level of, and sometimes I'm actually able to tune into this. You know, I think this would actually be useful. This is certainly useful for me personally. Any moment that I step off the self-esteem roller coaster and connect to other people and engage in what I'm doing at the moment, I feel so much better. Gosh, it's, and it goes better. I actually have, you know, this organism that I call Ron actually shows up in a better way when he's not all 
concerned with Ron in this way. So I can come at it from that and just sort of enjoy, in this case, the ideas, enjoy hearing your questions, trying to connect with you around this and, and our listeners, and it transforms the experience. And then there are other things that we can do that actually um, add into this. One of them, and this is a, you know, it's shown in the positive psychology literature, which is really the, the study of what makes us have well-being, uh, shown to be such an important factor, is gratitude. You know, when we're, when we're worried about us, how am I doing? How am I sounding? What do they think? How do I look? We're not in a space of gratitude. We're, we're in a space of fearing not having enough. You know, oh, I won't sound smart enough. I won't have enough friends. Um, people won't be attracted to me. It's that fear of not having enough. And one of the wonderful things about gratitude practices, which is really just taking some time each day or each week to reflect on um, what's good, you know, what's good in our life. Um, you know, we're recording this during the Ukraine war, right? Not being in Ukraine, gratitude for that, you know, for being alive and not being bombed is a you know, very simple level, not to mention for having friends and enough to eat and the like. Um, when we're doing this, two things happen. One is instead of coming out of fear and desire, like I need something else to be good enough. I need something else to feel good about me. We have a sense of it's enough. This ordinary life is really enough. It's really a blessing. And the other thing is when we're grateful, we're grateful toward or for something, right? For some people, it's God. For some people, it's nature. For some people, it's my friends and my family, but it, it tends to connect us to something larger than ourselves. And that too can be very, very powerful. You know, anything that connects us to something larger than ourselves moves us out of the sense of deprivation and to noticing what we do have, allows us to engage, and that allows us to uh, connect with others. All this helps us to step off the self-esteem roller coaster. I love that you said all of that. One of the things I found to be particularly true is when we stop competing with people, it's like they stop too, if we just try to connect with them. And I'll give you an example. I, I met somebody and uh, he was telling me about the luxury car that he drove and he was telling me all about it. And I said, that's wonderful. And then he said, what do you drive? And I said, a Kia Soul. And the moment I said that, the moment he started actually telling me, well, actually I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. And we started talking about the struggles and we just were able to then make a connection. I wasn't in competition. That's great. You drive that car, but I don't really drive a luxury car, but I find that that happens a lot. And when we focus more on, rather than worrying about ourselves, when we worry more about how do I really connect to this human being, amazing things can happen. Yeah. And it's so, it's so transformative. That's such a great example. And, and it almost always comes when we stop posturing, when we, when we really decide, you know, instead of trying to impress this person, I'm going to try to connect with them. And, you know, what you said also is, is super important because, you know, there are some people that when we interact with them, they get, they get us going in this territory, right? They get us feeling yeah. inadequate or like, I want to show them that, uh, that I've got this or I've got that. And in many ways, it's a, um, it's a bit of a barometer of how much this other person is struggling how much this other person is vulnerable here, um, if they're going about the world in a way that activates us. Because we're, you know, you can be with somebody who is, um, uh, who is very renowned. Like I, I had the opportunity um, uh, 
on a couple of occasions to interact with the Dalai Lama uh, in, in, in a professional capacity. And uh, uh, one of my colleagues said at a conference we had with the Dalai Lama, he said, yeah, one of the nice things about talking to the Dalai Lama is you don't have the feeling he's scanning the room for a better networking opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 actually just there with you and for whatever few moments he's actually interested in you and we feel it we feel it when we're around people who aren't you know looking to aggrandize themselves uh in some way and and we can become that person ourselves the, the other thing about this is um you know humility genuine humility that comes from recognizing our ordinariness, it's, it's such a relief. It's, you know, it's like dropping, you, you know, it, when, when I notice just how often my mind is striving to accomplish something, usually so that I can feel good about myself and avoid feeling bad about myself. And then the moments of dropping that and realizing, you know, it's okay, I'm just, you know, I'm just this guy. In fact, I'm an old guy now, and you know, and, and, and that's okay. It's such a relief. It's such a relief. And, and it, it, really, it really promotes connection when we feel this way. Yeah, I grew up really shy most of my life. I didn't talk in front of three people, let alone a room full of people or thought of having a podcast. And somebody asked me before, like, well, how'd you get over that? One of the things was making that shift. I no longer get on stage and worry about whether I look stupid. I'm more worried about how do I make sure that I'm conveying information in a way that's helpful to other people. When you start thinking more about other people and ensuring that you're making a connection makes all the difference in the world. And when I'm not self-conscious anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's so powerful. And then when we are self-conscious to be forgiving about that, you know, it's, one of the myths we have in our culture is that only losers worry about this. Only losers feel insecure. Only losers have their feelings about themselves going up and down each week, month, an hour. And, you know, if you were really secure, if you were really successful, you wouldn't have these feelings. And that mythology makes it so that people won't share their feelings about this. You know, sometimes when I do the exercise we did in a room full of people, people first are looking around to see, will anybody else admit it? Will anybody else admit this? Because, you know, indeed, you know, even having, you know, worked on this book, which was actually a self-treatment project, you know, it was based on the (laughs) fact that here I was in my 60s, having spent decades um, doing psychotherapy, having been in psychotherapy myself. I'm interested in mindfulness and other contemplative practices. So I've been involved in these practices whose goal is to not be self-preoccupied. And here I was still feeling good or bad about myself, exactly as you said, the story about that psychologist friend, you know, depending on how the last session went or depending on how the last interview went. And and I thought, you know, what is this? Is this really just because I got picked on, you know, when I was, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in early adolescent or wasn't very good in kickball and I, you know, I, I haven't been able to he- heal the scars or is there something more universal about this? And trusting that there's something more universal about this is really helpful. You know, the other thing that's really helpful, actually, I'm just thinking of it now as I remember the, the rather small T trauma of the kickball um, uh, selection process. <laughs> in, in many ways to get over this, we have to be willing to face our injuries. Because, um, you know, the thing that, at least for me, and I see this in, in my clients too, you know, the thing that makes it so unbearable to have a rejection 
or so unbearable to feel like, um, uh, you know, we didn't make it or our friend did better or has more or whatever, is that when it happens today, it resonates with the times when it happened in the past. And when this happens to us as a kid, when we don't get picked for the team, when um, when our feelings get hurt, when the other kids are at the party and we're not, and and even, you know, doesn't matter whether you were in aggregate a winner or a loser. We all have these experiences. At the time, we try to block them out of awareness, right? We try to push it away or build ourselves up in some other way or distract ourselves. But as one of my patients put it so eloquently, when we bury feelings, we bury them alive. You know, they don't actually disappear. And so they show up when we're in a current situation where we might succeed or fail or feel like we're good or bad or honest or not or whatever it is. And the current loss or the current um, uh, self-esteem collapse then resonates with all of those past feelings. And that's what makes it so unbearable. So one way forward with this is every time we have a disappointment, every time we have that sinking feeling, can we use it as an opportunity to heal some past hurt? Can we ask ourselves, what does this remind me of? And can I connect now that I'm a grown-up with what happened back then? And maybe it was last week, but oftentimes it was, it was years ago. And with a sense of with a sense of loving compassion, can I help to heal that and understand, oh, of course that broke your heart back then, sweetheart. Um, and, and that's where, you know, developing an attitude of self-compassion where we can be kind to ourselves and treat ourselves the way a loving friend might treat us under these circumstances actually allows us to heal some of those past hurts. And when we do that, we're less, we're less desperate in the present. We're more able to win some and lose some, um, uh, feel that we're a good person, feel that we're a bad person, feel that, you know, it, 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 it becomes possible to accept all these different parts of ourselves. I'm so glad that you, you've got a whole section in your book about healing your wounded parts. And as soon as I got to that section, I mean, I could automatically, boom, go right back to when I was eight years old. And these little things that, you know, I overheard somebody say something about me that they didn't know I heard. And it, it's like, yeah, I tried to bury those feelings alive. But as soon as you start to get into those situations as an adult, I think it does. It brings up all those feelings and the things that we didn't heal because we didn't have the skills to deal with them back then. Yeah. So, so, you know, there, I mean, there's so many things that conspire to keep us trapped in this, right? Because there's all the messages from the culture that if only you could be a winner, you'd be happy. All the messages that say only insecure losers struggle with this, you know, um, uh, all of the ways in which it's addictive and it feels good when we do well. And this real problem that we're all carrying around a lot of hurts from all these things that happened in the past. And we kind of have to do the work of healing them in order to, um, have the confidence that if we have a disappointment now, we're going to, we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to feel it. And, you know, I want to say one other thing about this, what you, what you just mentioned reminded me of this. And it's, it's the difference between trying to fix things by bolstering our self-esteem and finding a way to be compassionate with ourselves. Um, I find it easiest to think about this uh, when a kid comes to a parent uh, having just had um, a disappointment. You know, let's say a kid comes home and um, and uh, he didn't make the cut for the baseball team and he's dejected. 
you know, if we're thinking that the answer is feeling good about yourself and self-esteem and all this, well, then the parent will say, oh, well, yeah, that's true. But you were great on the basketball team in the fall. And, and uh, you know, you won the math regional championships and you're really smart. And, you know, build up your self-esteem in some other area to make this bad feeling go away. If the parent were trying to help the child to be more self-accepting and more self-compassionate, what they would do is they'd say, oh, sweetheart, you know, I was really into drama when I was your age and it so hurt my feelings. I didn't make the school play, you know, and, you know, I felt defeated and I felt like I wasn't good enough and it was really painful. These kinds of things hurt, sweetie. I know what that's like. I love you anyway, and it's going to be okay. And, you know, just something that allows us to feel the hurt, feel loved, feel connection, accept the hurt, and not predicate our whole life on figuring out how I'm going to be a winner to make the hurt go away. I like that. What about, uh, and this will be my last question, but what about when you have the third kind of parent? I'll give you the example. I'm like 34 probably, and I make the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And I say, hey, dad, I made the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. His response is, well, what number on the list were you? (laughs) Uh Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I mean, I I feel for you and I feel for your dad. (laughs) And, you know, and, you know, to the extent to which you can realize, oh, my God, what's his inner landscape like, right, that that he needs this to be. Um, the the case and and what a wonderful example right you can make the bestseller list but still have your heart collapse when your dad says what number were you on the list right you know the, and now now you can see why I loved your book so much how yeah. it was so helpful <laughs> well well good you know I mean I, I still reread it I'm still working on myself with this this is not this is not a one and done uh, and uh, I, I you know I appreciate your sharing this too because again this pernicious fantasy that it's only people who haven't achieved enough that suffer this way. And the reality that, you know, this affects all of us, no matter where we are in whatever hierarchy, whatever hierarchy we construct for ourselves, um, it doesn't matter. There, you know, when I look at the billionaires competing over their space programs and whose rocket is going to go higher, we really start to realize there is no end to this. So we might as well start working on it now, wherever we are in, 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 in our life. And, uh, you know, find, find a way to discover this gift of being ordinary because it really is a gift to step off of this roller coaster. Absolutely. And I think I love that you make it clear that we're all a work in progress and that even as the author of this book, this is something you still work on. And I imagine for all of us, we could spend the rest of our lives just working on self-acceptance and being okay with who we are right now and allowing ourselves to to feel good about ourselves despite whatever we haven't achieved. Right. Yeah, totally. And and to and to really shift the whole to shift the whole emphasis from how do I feel good about me, like, hey, look at me, to how do I not be so concerned with me and connect with others? Because that that that's that's the most profound relief. Not easy. It only comes from time to time. But in the moments when we really do forget about ourselves in that way, um, uh, all things thrive. Well, thank you so much for being on our show, for sharing your wisdom, and for giving us this book to remind us of the extraordinary gift of being ordinary. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you so much for sharing it with your audience. Welcome to The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll break down Dr. Siegel's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. 
Here are three of my favorite strategies Dr. Siegel shared. Number one, notice when you associate achievements with happiness. There are probably times when you think that a promotion, a ribbon, a trophy, or some other form of achievement will finally validate that you're good enough. But Dr. Siegel points out that the boost in happiness we receive from an achievement is short-lived. And as soon as the thing we finally achieve doesn't make us happy anymore, we move on and try to achieve the next big thing. And this perpetual cycle of chasing the next big thing actually diminishes our happiness. So pay attention to those times when you try to trick yourself into believing that your next big accomplishment will make you happy. And ask whether you actually want to strive to do more or whether you might actually feel happier just doing something a little more ordinary, like enjoying time doing a hobby that you love, rather than feeling like you have to accomplish something really productive. You might find that giving yourself permission to do something ordinary might actually be the key to living a better life. And number two, focus on connecting with people, not impressing them. Dr. Siegel talks about how much most of us worry that we aren't doing enough in life. Social media exaggerates our belief that everyone else has a better life than we do. Maybe you've been guilty of doing something just because you think it will look good on social media rather than out of a genuine desire to actually do it. I know I have. But it's okay to just do something ordinary. Stay home and read a book rather than go out and do something that looks impressive, if that's what you'd actually rather be doing. And when you're talking to somebody, worry less about impressing them and more about connecting with them. You might be surprised how quickly you connect with people when you aren't worried about whether they think you're successful enough. And number three, view uncomfortable feelings as an opportunity to heal a past hurt. We're often really quick to push away an uncomfortable feeling like anxiety or sadness, but those emotions serve a purpose. So I like that Dr. Siegel suggests that those emotions can be an opportunity to work through them and heal an old hurt. This is easier said than done though. When you feel an uncomfortable emotion sometimes, it's helpful to think about what's stirring up that feeling and when you've had that feeling before. That can help you learn more about yourself. Like that loneliness you feel right now might remind you of the time when you felt lonely as a kid because you didn't have anyone to play with at recess. Or the anxiety you feel about going somewhere where you don't know anyone might remind you of how you felt when you started a new school. Allowing yourself to acknowledge those feelings and work through them in a healthy way could heal those past hurts. If you're driven to keep achieving more, and you stop trying to do so, there's a good chance some uncomfortable feelings are going to get stirred up. But that doesn't mean you should go back to trying to be an overachiever. Instead, it just means you have more opportunity to do some healing. So those are three of Dr. Siegel's strategies that I highly recommend. Notice when you associate happiness with achievement. Focus on connecting with people, not impressing them. And view uncomfortable feelings as a way to heal past emotional wounds. To get more tips from Dr. Siegel, check out his book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.